Hey friends, welcome to our Waterworks podcast, episode 21. I am Reverend Karen Weiss, your podcast host. Waterworks is a ministry of prayer that provides empowerment, knowledge, and nurture through spiritual direction, coaching, training, retreats, and justice work. I'm very excited to share with you and remind you again about the Waterworks concert on March 18th. Um, It's a fundraiser for Waterworks Ministries so that we can offer scholarships for spiritual direction, coaching, training, and retreats. We want to have all people who want to participate in these activities have the means to do so. And so this concert is one of the ways that we fund scholarships. So we hope that we will see you on March 18th. And you can visit our website, waterworksministries.org, under the Training and Retreats tab to get more information on the time, the date, um, location, etc. So check us out there, and I hope you can join us for our concert. I also want to highlight a couple of people who are doing some pretty great things in the world of writing. Andy Cumbo Floyd is coming out with a book in late May called Plantation Jesus, and it's about racism in the church and how we can potentially make the church, um, the white church, more inviting to those of different nationalities and different uh, heritages. It's designed so that it can be read like a book or used as a weekly book study. I met Andy this past weekend at a writer's workshop and was excited to hear about this resource. I think it's going to be really great. Um, So you can find out more information about her at andylit.com, which is A-N-D-I-L-I-T.com. Also, one of our guests from season one, Kelly Kripsik, has come out with another book, and this second book is a collection of poems, and it's named Between Heaven and Earth. So check her out as well. Um, The book and her first book, which is called Chicken Scratch, um, is really great. Also, her website is thiscontemplativelife.org. So I encourage you to look at the websites, Purchase the books wherever fine books are sold, and you'll have the links in the show notes so you can see their other works as well. So without any further ado, we're going to get into this podcast, episode 21, and I'm calling it The Temptation because this episode is kind of like a sermon but it expands a little bit on the theme from episode 19, which is the armor of God. And the armor of God you can find in Ephesians chapter 6. And so we're going to look at specifically Ephesians chapter 6, verse 17, which talks about the sword of the Spirit, which is the word of God. And then we're going to go into the Luke account of the temptation of Jesus when he was in the wilderness. So here we go. The sword of the spirit, 
like I said, is the word of God. And this is the last item that is described to have as the armor of God in Ephesians. The Greek word that Paul uses for sword is makaira, which is the gladius. And the gladius type of sword is not this three foot sword like we think of from, you know, Braveheart or 300 or any of these, you know, great kind of um, epic war movies. Um, that, you know, three foot long sword is a spatha. But this gladius that Paul is talking about is approximately 18 inches long. So it's not very long. And it was used for close hand-to-hand -hand combat. So to use a gladius, you had to be close to your opponent and in their personal space. The blade of this type of sword was double-edged and it was extremely sharp at the tip. Um, and it was used and it was used often um, to take someone by surprise, you know, coming up behind someone, um, and it was a deadly weapon. So this gladius, this sword that Paul is describing, is both a defensive and offensive weapon. And it was just assumed and taken for granted that the sword was wielded with the right arm. And the right arm or the right hand is a symbol of power and authority. So we have this idea of strength and power and authority with holding the sword of the Spirit. Now we have to remember that it's the Holy Spirit sword. So we might hold it but we don't necessarily direct or control it. It's given to us to be used in the spiritual realm by the spirit. We can't deliver the death blow to the enemy. Only God can do that. So trying to do something out of our own strength or knowledge is, is fairly futile if we're trying to wield the sword of the spirit because God doesn't necessarily need our help in that way but we need God's help because this battle that we're talking about whether spiritual warfare evil or just with our own egos is not against the flesh and blood aspect of who we are as people but really is against those things that we can't see this tension is between and in a whole other realm that I think we're generally helpless to fight against without God's assistance and guidance. Because most of the time we can't see or touch it, the spiritual realm, but it impacts the physical realm and vice versa. So that is the sword of the spirit. It's this gladius, it's close hand-to-hand -hand combat, and we might hold it as people, but really it's God's design and focus and control and leading um, in terms of how the sword is used. So then we get to the second half of this phrase, the sword of the spirit, which is the word of God. And that's the word of God. And so now 
we're going to have more Greek because I think in this instance, the Greek is really important to understanding what we're talking about by the word of God. So to refer to the Bible or the Old Testament scriptures, the physical book that we all have, um, Paul and Peter also would have used the word grapha. It's the physical book of of any kind, really. But for us, we're speaking particularly to the Bible itself. Um, And it's interesting because I've been in houses where, you know, grandma's gigantic 10 or 15 pound Bible is sitting on the coffee table or sitting on the nightstand next to someone's bed. And I've asked, I'm like, oh, you know, that's a really interesting looking Bible. Um, what version is it? Or, you know, do you read it every day? Is that why it's here? And they're like, no, you know, it was my grandma's and I like having it around because it, it brings me comfort. Like having the physical book is some kind of talisman or magic or lucky charm that helps protect them or something. Um, but I think as we all kind of guess, the Bible doesn't work that way. We have to know what the Bible says in order for it to make a difference in our lives and the lives of others. So the grapha, that physical book, is not what Paul is talking about here. It's the place where the words are written, which then gets us into the logos, which is the message of the grapha, the actual book. So the Logos is alive and active and present. Um, It can penetrate, quote, the invisible realm and divide between soul and spirit. It is also able to discern and judge both the thoughts and the intentions of the heart, end quote. So as we hear in the first chapter of John, Logos is Jesus, is the Christ, the Messiah, who can see through our actions and into our motivations and our heart. And then we get to the third word that is used for word in the Greek, and it's rema, R-H-E-M-A in English. And it's the word that is used for word of God. Rema means utterance, uh, spoken word, or what has been declared. So it's, it's the actual words coming out of our mouths. It's that which is being proclaimed in many ways. And so this Rema word is the specific declaration regarding the logos of the grapha. So it's the declaration or utterance of the message of the actual text. Now, God's Rema made all things in Genesis 1, and the Rema also cuts to the heart of the matter. It can declare and illuminate and 
convict and make us feel ways and things that um, the grapha, let's say, can't do for us. So this is why it's so important to know what the Bible says, what the grapha says in terms of logos and message, so that the Holy Spirit can then bring to mind verses that we've read that can come out of us so that we can declare what is true about who we are as people who we are with in relationship with creation, in relationship to God, um, and that kind of thing. So saying, you know, God or the Bible says this or God says this about who I am is very powerful, especially when it comes to uttering or declaring what God says about us as human beings and how we see ourselves. And it's how Jesus basically gave the sit down to the accuser um, when Jesus was in the wilderness. And so that's the second part of this podcast here now, which is what brings us to Luke chapter 4, verses 1 through 13. Jesus is in the wilderness, fasting for 40 days. And Satan comes and confronts him with three different challenges. Challenges, And Jesus responds to the accuser with scripture. And then Satan leaves. That's the short version anyway. But before we start in um, into the the messianic claims of Jesus and his ministry that are um, highlighted in this passage. We're going to start, of course, because it's me and I love the Old Testament, with how this narrative in Luke connects Jesus with the Israelites while they were in the wilderness with Moses in their Exodus time. So first, Jesus was led by the Spirit into the wilderness which parallels that the Israelites were led by the Spirit while in the wilderness, and that Spirit was, was showing itself by either a pillar of fire at night or a cloud by day. And then the Israelites spent 40 years in the wilderness, and Jesus spent 40 days in the wilderness. Um, 40 is an important number to... The Israelites and the Jews and so this mirroring um, would have raised thoughts and have been a reminder of the wilderness time the exodus time to those Jews who were hearing this scripture passage or this letter at the time be read and then we get to the three temptations in Luke, and those temptations also mirror the Israelites' temptations in the wilderness. So one of the first things that the Israelites do is complain to Moses about having nothing to eat. And 
God sends manna to them. And that's in Exodus 16. So they are supplied with a bread-like substance miraculously in many ways. The second temptation is regarding idolatry or worshiping something other than God. Now the Israelites believed that Moses and their God had somehow abandoned them or that Moses had died because he had been up on the mountain for a very long time according to them. So they convinced Moses' brother Aaron to make them an idol to go before them and they made a golden calf. Um, And so that's from Exodus 32. And then the third thing that, um, the third way that the Israelites were tested was um, actually in testing God. And so in Exodus 17, the Israelites complained that they were going to die of thirst. So Moses taps a rock and water comes out of the rock. Moses calls this place Massa and Meribah because the Israelites quarreled and tested the Lord. Through this passage, Luke is connecting Jesus with the fulfillment of the law and describing how Jesus is the perfect Hebrew. Claiming Jesus as the Son of God had both political and religious implications. The term Son of God was a term used actually by the Caesar, the ruler of Rome, as a claim of authority and power. So to say that anyone else was the Son of God was to deny Caesar his power and essentially commit treason. So that was a very political perspective for embodying this term, Son of God. But then in both a political and religious perspective, the Israelites were expecting a Messiah to come and restore Israel to a glorious kingdom that would have been better than in the time of Solomon. And so Son of God meant to the Israelites that their Messiah had arrived. Now, this story serves other functions in Luke in addition to showing the nature of Jesus' work as the Son of God and connecting Jesus firmly within the history of the Jews. This narrative shows that there is conflict between God's reign and the accuser's reign, that Jesus is the fulfillment of Scripture, and that Jesus offers his followers a means or method to resist temptation. So Jesus uses the sword of the Spirit as a rebuttal to the Satan's challenges. All three responses that Jesus gives are from Deuteronomy, which is a book of the Torah with which Jesus would have been very familiar. If he was studying in the synagogues and and he was called rabbi, he would have known scripture inside and out. And so it would have been and maybe it would have become part of him. Like when Ezekiel eats the scroll, um, the word becomes part of him. And this first trial seems somewhat straightforward. The Accuser comes at Jesus when he would have been at his most vulnerable. He was hungry and probably tired from fasting for 40 days in the wilderness. 
And so I think, what better time to attack someone than when they have weakened defenses? This test is all about Jesus' physical nature, turning a rock into bread. And yet Jesus responds by saying that man does not live by bread alone. Jesus uses the rema word to resist the enemy. The second temptation has some interesting facets, at least to me. Satan offers Jesus the authority over all the kingdoms of the world right then, at that very moment, if only Jesus will worship him. I've always wondered why this was one of the temptations. I think because I've been prone to assume that Jesus was inherently above the desire for power and wealth. Um, growing up as a common day laborer, um, you know, they, we often say that Jesus was a carpenter, but he wasn't a carpenter of fine furniture or beautiful cabinetry or something like that. The word that's used to describe him is really just a basic laborer. Um, maybe someone who would, you know, build houses like we think of that kind of basic carpentry today. And so I guess it never occurred to me that Jesus would have this desire for power and wealth over all of the world. But as a human, he wasn't immune to that kind of desire. Um, not really, I don't think. And so um, when Satan comes and says, you can have all of this. Imagine what you can do with all of this if you will just worship me. It's a temptation I think we all face in one way or another. And then another thing I find fascinating is that Jesus doesn't argue with Satan's claim that it can give Jesus all the kingdoms. Like, there's no question that for now, Hasatan, as it as the accuser is referred to in Job, has power and strength in this world. But what Jesus does do is he refutes this temptation with scripture. So Jesus says, worship the Lord your God and serve him only. The sword of the spirit comes to the fore again. And I find it interesting that Although the enemy is not all-knowing, it offers Jesus a shortcut around the suffering, pain, and agony of the cross. If Jesus had taken this option then, at that time, his ministry, death, and resurrection would not have happened. The glory that we are all invited into would not have existed. I personally don't want to imagine a world in which that happened, where Jesus chose to worship Satan as opposed to God. Um, so I'm glad that Jesus made this one particular choice. But Jesus focused on scripture and spoke it out loud, I think not only to fend off the attack of the enemy, but also to remind himself of what's important. Now, the third temptation 
puts God's promises to the test. Like Satan is somehow baiting Jesus to prove who he is. Um, I think the best and the worst parts of this is that the enemy uses scripture to bait Jesus. The accuser's use of scripture against Jesus, I think, should make alarm bells go off in our heads. Like, oh my, our enemy knows scripture and isn't afraid to use it against us. Yowzers might come to mind. Um, And I call this the 1% spin, where what we are hearing is 99% truth and the 1% spin that manipulates and twists the truth to try to convince us that we should do something when it's not God's intention, like Jesus throwing himself off the highest part of the temple. That's not God's desire for Jesus. Um, And so the accuser is goading Jesus, and Jesus will have none of it. He responds again with scripture saying, don't test God. And as quickly as the story begins, it ends with the enemy leaving until an opportune time. Normally, I don't think we're going to be tempted in such blatant ways. You know, a personified evil isn't usually going to show up and try and bait us like Jesus was tempted. Our temptations are more sneaky and subtle. Um, I think like our constant need to be connected through technology, um, often to the detriment of our health, sleep, and relationships. You know, I was, I'm reading Ariana Huffington's book called Thrive, and she talks a lot about how disconnecting from technology and getting good sleep and taking care of ourselves is really, really important for success and, and our well-being. You know, she mentioned something to the effect of, you know, we don't need to check our email or Facebook or Instagram feed at three in the morning. We just don't. Um, And that made me laugh because I actually do like to turn off my phone when I go to bed and then I don't often turn it up, turn it on until an hour after I get up. Um, And it's lovely. I'm not worried. But we live in this kind of gluttonous culture where the lie of more is better is celebrated through technology, through all-you-can-eat buffets, um, you know, just so many different things that we're being tempted with that are really, when it comes down to it, not good for our well-being. They're not good for our relationships with our friends and family. They're not good for our relationship with God. Um, Self-denial or even generalized restraint is not necessarily celebrated in our culture. We can get sucked into overeating, let's say, to ignore our emotions. We can consider food as reward or punishment in a way that breaks down the healthy relationship between whole food and care for our bodies. And these are just a couple ways that I have experienced and succumbed to temptation over and over again. 
And I know that I'll make more choices that create disorder in my life. But there are some key practices that can help us uh, refute this temptation or whatever temptation that shows up for us. The first thing to do is to be aware that the temptation is there. So becoming self-aware, learning more about ourselves, how we're wired, what our values are, uh, are some things that we can do ourselves to make us more aware of who we are and what our temptations are. But we also need God's help to open our eyes, our ears, our minds, and our hearts, and whatever else needs assistance, so that we can see quickly where we are being tempted. Because it's not just eventually seeing it, but seeing it quickly and then being able to refute it and speak against it. And as part of this opening to awareness, it's also life-giving to have the desire to actually change our behavior and habits. So for those things that have tripped us up for a really long time, change won't come quickly, and we have to have perseverance and determination to keep fighting what, what really can seem like a losing battle. We, rem- we can remind ourselves and ask God to remind us that the perseverance is worth it. And often this reminder comes from scripture. So we need to know what the Bible says if we're going to arm ourselves with the sword of the spirit every day. One of the most important themes in both the Old and New Testaments is the theme of identity. Who are we in God? Who are we as human beings in relationship to God? and creation and each other. And for Christians, knowing who we are in Christ is vital to sustaining and deepening our relationship with the creator. I don't think I can understate this part of of identity, you know, knowing who we are, knowing and living into our identity in God is such a big part of why we're here on this planet to experience love and grace and mercy and then to offer that to others. It's why we're here. You know, we're born to be in relationship and as an extreme introvert, um, that comes fairly in a fairly difficult way for me um, because I do enjoy being by myself and that's how I'm restored but I also really value my deep friendships Um, and I find it ironic that our culture and with technology's help we have patterns of of you know phone use that are moving us more and more into isolation even though we think we have so many ways to connect I have a friend who has a son who I think is 22 and he, it's funny because he's actually fairly anti-technology in many ways. Um, He gets on his mom's case for texting him. If you're going to talk to him, 
literally, he wants you to talk to him. And he calls his mom and and other adults out and did this actually when my friend had some company over where her son looked at the adults and was like, you guys are all on your phones. Put them down and actually talk to each other. It was so funny um, when she was telling me the story. But unfortunately, that's what we seem to do. We're captivated by our phones and the, all the information that could or might not be on there. And we lose sight, literally, of who is surrounding us. So being present in the same room with someone, walking through the woods, spending time with and focusing on God are all ways to live into our identity, you know, experiencing the creation. I know a lot of people who love the beach. So spending time at the beach, or if you love, you know, I have a friend that goes up to Maine. She loves, you know, her family loves the snow. Um, And so there are ways that we can live into our identity that are really the antithesis of what culture is telling us. And so every day, you know, I think even every moment with every breath, we're being invited by God to live into our true identity, the identity that God gave us. And a lot of people, myself included for a long time, didn't know what this identity was. And one of the ways that I learned who I was truly as a created being came from scripture. I love the first three book, three chapters of Genesis because God, at least in chapter one, part of chapter two, we learn about how lovingly God makes the universe and the world and human beings and how there is great care in terms of God's intentionality, the love and grace that he infuses literally into creation and into matter. Um, So we're lovingly made in God's likeness with a gigantic capacity for goodness. And the creation story tells us that we, both male and female, are made in God's likeness. It's not just Adam, but Eve too. We are originally blessed when God looks at creation and says it's very good. So there's one piece from scripture. If you read the Psalms, so many examples are in the Psalms where, you know, we are beautifully and wonderfully made. God knows us in the womb and loves us. We're peacemakers, we're healers, we're servants and warriors, depending on the moment or the day. God wants to pour out the spirit in and through us so that we are constantly connected to the stream of living water that is Jesus. And because of that connection, we can become the wisdom and love and light that is Christ. I think for so long, like several hundred years so long, we've heard pastors and teachers and, you know, you as people may have even heard your parents focus on the total depravity of human beings, how awful and sinful 
we are. And almost like they're trying to scare us into right behavior and falling in line. Um, but there's such a more beautiful picture that scripture paints of our identity that holds both our idiocy and narcissism and greed and whatever else you want to lump in that category in tension with the beautiful way in which we are created. And so this picture in understanding what scripture tells us about ourselves is one of embracing the grace of who we were, who we are created to be, and the beautiful mess that is us in the present. And I think this picture isn't always so obvious, but it's there as a thread throughout scripture if you look and listen carefully. And so in order to wield and carry the sword of the spirit, which is the word of God, we need to know God. We need to know God's character. And we need to know what the Bible says about God and about us and about who we are created to be so that when temptation does come, we can say, no, that's not who I am. I am deeply and passionately loved or, you know, I am created in the likeness and image of God with a huge capacity for goodness and I choose goodness. Um, you know, these kind of things are ways that God works in and through us to remind us of who we are and how deeply we are loved. And so I hope, friends, that you have been lovingly reminded of who you are with this podcast and that you receive and embrace God's grace and mercy this day. Grace and peace. See you next time.